So, I've been doing some thinking. Okay. There's a lot of people at the table. Usually. When we're playing D&D. Now, I feel like that's an untapped resource. Like, I mean, I do a lot of work prepping. You do a lot of work when you're running your games. Well, you know, why do we, why is it all going to be on us? So, you want to talk for a bit about how maybe we can split the load that the DM carries among the players as well. Yeah, I was just thinking they could add to the experience. And lighten the load. Yeah. Sounds good. Hello, and welcome to Game Master Studio, where we'll be talking tabletop role-playing games, tips and tricks to help bring your game at home up to the next level. For today's topic, we'll be talking about players assisting the DM at the table and to help the game run a bit more smoothly. My name is Jared, a.k.a. Frieden. I'm Jared, a.k.a. DMF. So... We're talking about something that we've used in our games so much that it's become second nature, and we realized that we should probably share it because it's a useful trick to help the games run smoothly, and that is the role of the assistant DM. Now, before we get started, we want to make sure that you understand that an assistant DM is different from what is commonly referred to as a rules lawyer. Right, yeah. So the rules lawyer is going to be the person who drags out the books and pulls out obscure rules to try to prove their point and try to, I don't know, get one over on the DM or try to take control. Yeah. The assistant DM does a lot of the research and legwork and looking at the books in order to make the DM's life easier. Exactly, yeah. So, uh, if and you may see this at times when, if you're watching our Darkhound series, uh, I'll often be jumping into the books to look up spell effects when someone's just talking about maybe using the spell or if we've got questions on like, how does this rule work so that Jared, who's running the game can kind of focus on keeping things moving, understanding what the players want to do. And then I'm there. If we need to get into how does this spell work or how does this condition take place? Then we have those rules available right at hand and it doesn't stop the game while we look it up. Right, yeah, I think that's one of the big uh, important distinctions or things that you'll see uh, different with a rules lawyer as opposed to like the assistant DM that we we use. The the rules lawyer, like Jerry said, is trying to basically, um, I guess, yeah, the best way to describe it would be like to one up the DM or to like to correct them to be like the kind of like the know it all at the table. Uh, whether they're always right in every situation or not is a whole other story. Um, but the assistant DM, they're the two most important, uh, I'd say, traits of the assistant DM that's looking at rules and confirming things and checking them is uh, to, first of all, timing, knowing when to bring up the information. They're going to let them finish the scene, and then at the end of that scene, or when the DM calls on them, they'll give them the information that they're looking for, and they're not correcting them, they're informing them. And then the other... Uh, kind of subtext to that or other trait that I would say is important is tone and, and how it's communicated. So again, like uh, like I just mentioned, like they're, you're informing the DM of the information. You're not correcting the DM on the information. You're not saying you did that wrong. You're saying, so just so you know, this is how it's, you know, this is how, what the book says. I think that's a really important distinction too, is just saying, well, according to the book, it's this. Now, the according to the book part is really important because a DM has the right to say, no, even though it says that in the book, we're doing it this way in my game. Right, yeah. So the the 
Rules lawyer says, no, the game has to be this way. The assistant DM says, this is the baseline, but if you want to change it, just be aware that you're making a change. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, actually, I think another trait to add on that's very useful for the assistant DM is they should be an experienced player who knows the books. Right. Because it's important that they can find the information quickly and efficiently and be able to communicate that mm-hmm. without holding the game up more when we need a consultation. Right, yeah. Um, also, they're going to, because they're more experienced player or, or you know, a DM themselves, they're going to kind of anticipate a lot of these situations, you know, as soon as, you know, you know, David at the table starts mentioning that, like, oh, I want to grapple the giant, you know, Jerry can be flipping through the book and like, okay, Jared might need to know the information on grappling. I got it ready to go. Uh, you know, so, or I'm going to cast X spell. Okay, well, let me have that spell ready to go just in case Jared needs, you know, the information for it. So they're kind of anticipating, they're listening at the table, they're paying attention, and they they can anticipate what is going to, you know, the information that's going to be needed. Instead of, hang on a second, guys, let's let Jerry, you know, look this uh, information up real quick and stopping the game. Right. And, you know, you have that anticipation. You know, Being a DM yourself makes being an assistant DM easier. Um, Jared and I have been gaming together for a number of years now, and it's just easy routine that if he's running, then I'm kind of assistant DMing. And when I'm running, I know that he's doing the same for me, you know, covering my back. Uh, so you can use that to your advantage. You can also work with the other players to make it easier. Um, I know in some of the games you'll have somebody ask, hey, I have this ability on my sheet. What does that do? And you can give them the quick rundown and then flip to that page in the book. So when their turn comes around, they're like, I want to do this, which right. is what I just asked about. Mm-hmm. And now you have the full and complete rules there ready to go in case there's a question or confusion, or a misunderstanding. But there's more that players can do at the table than just tapping that one to be the assistant DM. Right. You can spread out, even to little less experienced players, some of the bookkeeping that's involved, because there is a lot of it. Yeah, there is a lot of bookkeeping at the table, and I think this is probably a big opportunity for the players to kind of step up. Uh, I think, you know, assuming the DM's okay with this, obviously this is all DM discretion, you know, you use what you want to use from, you know, any of the ideas in this podcast. But I think that there is a lot going on for the DM already. There's a lot of, like you said, bookkeeping, a lot of record keeping. So if you start to spread some of that tasking around the table, you can really uh, kind of lighten the load, lighten your, uh, you know, uh, relieve some of the burden. So one of the, the big things, the first thing that came to my mind when, you know, spreading it around outside of the what people might typically think of for bookkeeping was, you know, like, Tracking initiative in combat. Right. That's usually a clunky system. I feel like every DM I've played with has a different way of tracking initiative, and almost all of them involve a lot of work on the DM's part, right. where they're trying to figure out who's going when and keeping track of all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you have a player tracking the initiative, then it's one less for the DM to have to worry about during combat, because during combat there's already a lot going on for the DM. Also, I think a good idea, like, if I was going to task... This is one of those uh, jobs that you could kind of, you know, delegate to different players throughout either the night or every session change who's going to track it. But I personally think that I would probably give it to the per, um, the player. If you, if you have a player that tends to zone out a little bit during combat, you know, not really pay attention when it's not their turn, uh, or just kind of be a little uh, flighty in general, this is probably the, the most likely the person that I would delegate this job to right off the bat. And probably be my go-to 
for all eternity, or at least until that trait kind of relieve, um goes away, I guess. Uh, but that way, that if they're tr the one tracking the initiative, they're always going to know when it's their turn. They're not going to be, oh, is it my turn? Uh, oh, uh, I guess I'm going to uh, cast this fireball spell. Uh, hey. I wasn't really ready for it. Hey, what's going on? I was paying attention. Did you move? You know, yeah. what'd you do? What'd you do? What's going on? Where? So where's the orc? Uh, what's going? Oh, there's a troll here. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. So they're tracking the initiative. They have to be paying attention. Hey, Jerry, you're up next. Okay, after Jerry, you know, David's going. Okay, uh, after David, uh, it's going to be the orc's uh, turn, then the troll, and then Ashley gets to go. Okay, now it's my turn again. You know, they're always going to know where they are in the combat. They have to be paying attention. It's, you know, if they're not paying attention, the whole combat falls apart. And that's going to be a little, you know, that's when you can kind of use peer pressure to your advantage because everyone's going to be kind of looking to that person and know what's going on. So they're always, again, they'll be, so they'll be prepared when it's their turn. They're going to know it's their turn. They'll be able to think about what's going on, pay attention the whole time and, you know, just have your combats run a lot smoother because you're not being held up by this one uh, rusty cog. And it can even be really useful and efficient if you have multiple people that are like that because that you've got multiple people that are kind of zoning out during combat. You give one of them the role of initiative, the track, and make sure that their job not only is to keep track of initiative, but when you tell somebody that it's their turn, you also tell the person who's going next that they're coming up next or they're on deck. Right. Um, I've had games that have used that, and it can help move combat along because while player A is taking their turn, player B is thinking about what they want to do on their turn rather than, okay, it's your turn. Okay, hang on while I think about what we're doing. Right, yeah. So that way you can move it up and speed it up, and you're not putting the burden of, drawing in people and keeping them paying attention on the DM. Right. We shifted that burden over to the player. Another one that can help with combats is having, and again, completely DM's discretion. Some DMs will very, very much scoff at this kind of concept or idea, but having one of the players track the hit points of the monsters or NPCs in the combat. Now, there's a couple different ways you can approach that, especially if you're one of the DMs where you don't want them to know the total you know, hit points of the monster because you don't want them to know, you know, how close to death they might be. You don't want them to kind of feel like any relief as they might be, you know, about to kill the giant troll for the, you know, or the giant third troll. He's only got five hit points left. Yeah. Don't waste a big spell on him. Just magic missile him. Right, yeah, exactly. So the, the two different ways you could do this, if you're going to have a player track the HP, is to just have them keep track of the total damage, which means you just need to check in with them or have them give you the running tally every time that monster or NPC takes damage, and you just have the totals written you know, in your notes, you know, like, okay, uh, the, the bandit's taken 48 damage total after that last fireball. Okay, well, I know that at 46 he's dead, so he falls dead. Uh, the other option would be to just let them know what the totals of all the NPCs or monsters are in the combat so they can just, you know, count down the damage that they're taking and then let you know, like, okay, well, that, that last one killed you, um, killed him, you know, or he's close to death. You know, he's only got, like, 20 hit points left. And you just kind of keep the DM informed. Either way, the DM has to be informed and there has to be some communication there. But, it, again, it takes some of the bookkeeping and record-keeping off their plate so they can kind of focus more on the tactics and running the combat and, you know, and making sure, you know, they're using, you know, nice descriptions during the combat, helping the players use descriptions. So, you know, I think it's, it's a nice way to take some of the burden off. There may be some arguments about people who say that, uh, that, oh, well, the players shouldn't know what a monster's hit points are, but realistically speaking in combat, you can probably tell that the guy who's bleeding from a dozen wounds is in worse shape than the guy who hasn't been touched yet. The players are going to know who they've hit where they landed a solid blow. They're going to be able to see these people 
down a step, gasping for breath, you know, trying desperately to keep their shield up because their arms are just feel like lead. You know, they're going to tell, they're going to be able to tell who's hurt and who is not. They may not have it to the exact precision of knowing a numerical hit points until they drop, but there's not going to be enough of a difference between getting that general idea from looking at them and having the exact number that's really going to impact your game negatively too much. Right, yeah. It also can, you can, again, if you're having someone track these hit points and you're willing to let them know the totals, that player can help take some of the burden off you by uh, them informing the table of where the the creature, monster, NPC, whatever it is, stands. Not in the sense of like, hey guys, he's only got, we got five hit points, don't waste that spell. But in the, you know, I don't know how many times you hear uh, in your, your typical D&D game, how badly does the monster look beat up? Like, you get that question a lot. If you're not actively describing, at, you know, at all points what they're looking like, you're going to get that question fairly often. So then you can kind of shift that question to the player, and the player can answer. It's like, okay, well, he had 100 hit points to start. He's down to 10. He looks pretty beat up, man. Like, he, you know, and and we're going to get into this a little bit more depth in a minute, but, like, you can start having him, like, jack up the description on it. Like, tell me how badly beat up he looks. Does he does it look like he's got a broken leg? You know, like, is his arm barely hanging on? And 4th edition, even though people, some people don't like it, but 4th edition had a standard mechanic whereby at half hit points, a creature or player was then considered to be bloodied. Right. So announcing the half hit point mark can help people keep a track on it as well. Yep, yeah, absolutely. Now, the next, the next piece of bookkeeping that we have is actually kind of been a standard for a while, so it's a lot of people may not think of it as sharing the burning, but that's doing the mapping, um, especially for dungeon crawls or places where the exact layout matters. The players making a map off the DM's description allows the DM to not have to worry about telling them, you know, oh, well, there was this room back three Door, three corridors ago that you didn't go through the door on the east wall, you know, whoever's playing cartographer and keeping those maps should definitely have that laid out. I had an instance where my players went into Cobalt Warrens unprepared, and after the third or fourth time that they returned back to the entrance because they got turned around after an hour, they're like, okay, we need to start mapping this. Right, yeah. Which, for me, was a little hilarious because the Cobalts were, like, picking and annoying them the whole time, but they were also just getting lost what I thought was a fairly simple cave complex. Mm -hmm. And then once they started mapping it, they realized where they kept getting turned around. Right on. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that's been, like you said, that's been a standard for a long time with the whole, the mapping kind of concept, but again, no one would really think of it as being an assistant. Uh, and another one right in the same ballpark is keeping track of treasure. Uh, it's almost pretty much every game that I've played in the last 10 years, you know, no matter the group, there is a player keeping track of the treasure that's been gotten. If, some groups, everyone tries to keep track of what they have. Every group I've been in, there's been one person. Like, I'm keeping track of everything that's been, you know, we've gotten. We can divvy it up later. Or I'm even keeping track. Like, this is everything we've got. If you're keeping track of what you're getting of this share, that's fine. But everything that's been handed to us is on this sheet. It's I, all accounted for. I, I find it almost seems like groups start off very competitive and everybody's like oh i get this or i want to race to loot the bodies first mm -hmm. and then as they grow and develop as a group they start thinking more team oriented and like oh well we've got we find a thousand gold okay we'll divvy it up when we get back to town just toss it in the bag of holding and note what we've got for now yeah 
Yeah, I'm definitely one of those people. As long as I know someone in the group's got it, we have it. I'm glad we're getting treasure. That's cool. Not important at the moment. And I, I don't need it till I need it. So that pretty much covers most of the bookkeeping. If you can think of any other ideas, just let us know. Because, I mean, the, the more we can spread out the, the love, the better. Uh, the next one is going to be descriptions. That's the next big uh, area where we think there's a lot of opportunity. And and descriptions has some very interesting things. When we, when we first started talking about this, and we'll cover some of this, I had the ideas of using some of this in my game because it's a little, it's a little bit of theory crafting and a little bit outside of the norm. Mm -hmm. But it seems like it could be really cool, um, fun not only to help bring your players in to help build the world, but also to encourage them to to maybe try DMing on their own down the road a little bit. Yeah. So uh, I already tried to get all my players to uh, be more descriptive during combat. I don't want to know that you rolled a seventeen and you did twenty damage. I want. I mean, obviously, I want to know that, but <laughs> I also, like, tell me, you know, how you're attacking, you know, you're swinging down with your greatsword, and you're gonna, you know, try to, you know, slash him right down his chest, and, you know, that's, which is another reason why I like to, personally, as a DM, I like to inform the players of the AC required to hit an enemy, so they know whether they were successful or unsuccessful during an attack, so they can feed that into the description when they're telling you what they're doing, you know. Okay, so, you know, I'm going to swing with my giant greatsword, and I rolled a 17, so, you know, I made contact, I'm going to slash him across his chest, you know, opening up this big wound, they take, you know, a whopping 20 points of damage, because I used my great weapon mastery, you know, and I have 10 damage on, and blah, 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 and, you know, everyone's having fun. And this also ties in with players tracking monster hit points. Right. Because they may know that, oh, I hit, oh, I did enough damage to kill him, mm -hmm. and that can lead to fun descriptions as well. Right, exactly, yeah. Which is another huge opportunity in combat. Uh, not only are you describing how you're attacking, but if you know that you've killed the monster, like you said, whether the, someone's tracking the HP for the, the DM or not, the DM will let you know, okay, well, that's going to kill him. Tell me how you're killing him. Let me know. Tell me this huge epic moment, you know, could make it cool. Not just, okay, I did 20 points to the orc, he's dead. Uh, so that's going to be, like, that was kind of the first, or the, the, something that I've already been doing. But I had this idea that what if we started sharing some more description around the table instead of me as a DM having to describe every single thing that, you know, the players encounter or everything that should be described if I kind of uh, shared and started having them describe NPCs and locations and, and, and other various things. I think, you know, it opens up a lot of possibilities. Also, instead of me trying to pull out what the inside of this tavern looks for the fourth tavern that night. You can, you know, I have one of the players describe to me what they see as they come through, you know, walk through the door. And you can even spread it on the table if it's a location. Okay, Jerry, you know, what's the first thing that you see when you walk through the door? Uh, I see a beautiful uh, bard maiden behind the bar. Okay, and what's the first thing that you notice, David? Oh, well, you know, it's, there's a nice polished oak wood floor. And okay, and actually, what do you see? I notice that there's a pair of swords hanging up on the wall, you know, behind the... The, the bar maiden, okay, yeah, and what do you see? You know, oh, yeah, well, uh, JR sees, uh, you know, that there's a, a bear skin rug that he is not too fond of. <laughs> and they start just, you know, describing the play. Or you can put it on one player. Tell me what you see. Describe the tavern to me, everything about it. And other players should also be free to use those descriptions to kind of capitalize on it. Right. Like, let's say we walk into town. What's the first thing you notice? Mm -hmm. Well, the rogue, he's... Being a rogue, he's got the rogue mindset. First thing he notices is, hey, there's a bunch of guardsmen over there, and they're interrogating somebody. You know, might want to be careful, steer clear of that. And then 
somebody else at the table playing the paladin is like, whoa, whoa, there's there's an altercation going on. I want to get involved, see what's happening, see what we can help out with. And now you've gone from my players are giving a description just to add flavor to now we've got a little side plot, little hook thing that they came up with on their own. And the DM just takes that and runs with it and adds more flavor to the game, adds more detail to the characters. And you might come up with something interesting that they never planned. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, another thing that you run into constantly in, uh, in your typical game is going to be tons and tons of NPCs. So by sharing with the, the players the option to describe some of these NPCs, especially your, your random NPCs or your, your, your middle-tier NPCs, the ones that are a little less important, I mean, you're probably going to still want to describe your big, giant, you know, big, bad, evil guy, and your really important, you know, the king, and your really important NPCs. But the random NPCs and other ones that are less important, you can definitely feel free to, okay, uh, you know, Jerry, you meet uh, this... Uh, the tavern keeper. Yeah, the tavern keeper. You know what? Describe to me the tavern keeper. Oh, well, you know, most wouldn't expect to see, you know, an orc in this town because it's mostly humans. But, uh, for you know, there's this old orc, you know, with a p- eye patch and, you know, a couple broken teeth. And, you know, he comes, wa- you know, kind of wobbling down on this cane and he's got this long beard. And, you know, oh, there's so it's an, an orc tavern keeper. Never would have thought of that one. All right, cool. Great. And, you know, you, your players should also, you know, loosen up and have fun with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe there's a player who decides every game has to have a dwarf with a French accent. Right. You describe the tavern keeper. Well, here we go. It's up to you whether or not you're going to have them name the NPCs or not. That's definitely their own little quirk. But, I mean, if they're going to be running into a bunch of random NPCs all the time, then who cares? I mean, you probably don't even care what their NPC name, the NPC's name is anyways. They're just there to fill the room and or just to give them a little piece of information and to point them in the right direction. So you can have them name Steve. And this is... This is Steve the bartender. The last five bars we've been in, the bartender has all been named Steve. Right, yeah. Which then uh, you can capitalize on if you choose to. I mean, if they're naming, uh, if they want to be funny and be silly and kind of try to exploit your little uh, uh, allowance or uh, leniency of letting them describe and name NPCs. They will. They will. They will. <laughs> then you can kind of bite back with it. You had the idea the uh, of... Uh, if they're going to name every bartender Steve, then... Then uh, they wind up having to meet up with an informant who gasps about that he gave the information before they caught him to Steve. And then passes. And then on. dies. Yeah. And they're like, which Steve? And then he comes back to life long enough to go, Steve the bartender, and dies again. And now they need to know, well, which Steve can we trust who has the information? Yeah. If only you didn't name them all Steve, you'd know right off the bat. <laughs> if you named them all Steve, then the informant would have put the information somewhere else. <laughs> so, yeah, it's another thing you can play with. I mean, they're going to have fun with you. You might as well have fun back. Uh, I mean, if you have a bunch of players that will take the whole concept completely seriously, then that's awesome. If they're going to be have a little bit of fun with it, have a little bit of fun back. You know, I mean, everyone's here to have fun anyways. So One of the other ones for descriptions uh, is magic. Spells. Yes, absolutely. Huge opportunity for descriptions. And that's and that's something we've really tried to work on in our games that we run. Um, you know, the Dark Hounds, you do see it a lot. Uh, I definitely try when I'm playing Tristan to make uh, the, the spells and the magic interesting. And the other players at the table are picking up on that. Um, and definitely in games that we're not recording, we try to try to describe the flavor of the spells, just like you're describing in combat. You know, you have your fighter who's going to do the you know, the swings with the sword and the great sword across the chest, 
well, why can't the wizard describe how his magic missile, rather than uh, just a bright light at the target, instead shoots straight up into the air and then shrieks in an arc as it goes to its target, you know, and so he's, rather than throwing them out forwards, is throwing them upwards and they're arcing over the battlefield and making all those wonderful noises like fireworks. Right, yeah. I've actually been meaning to talk to Ashley. She uses magic missile fairly often. And I was, you know, I mean, obviously it's going to be up to her whether or not she likes this idea or wants to reflavor it yet again. But I was toying with the idea where she's, you know, uh, an elder knight and she uses a giant greatsword. If she wanted to make it either A, look like she was shooting, ma- you know, the magic missiles or some very, you know, some um, appearance wise, you know, some other sort of energy bolt like from her sword. To kind of give like a little bit of like and maybe like an anime kind of feel, or the other concept was to make it look uh, the idea that I had for her to look like she's actually just throwing swords, even though they're just you know magic missiles, you know, so it looks like wham, 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 like oh god, she just threw swords at that guy, and they're just like screwed him up. <laughs> so yeah, just you know different ideas for flavoring up spells. You know, when she uses shocking grass, she's not just going up and touching somebody; she's punching them. Yep. So a lot of different things like that, and. Knowing where we're at right now in filming and knowing what's been released without giving any spoilers, um, Tristan is going forward. There's going to be a point where you're going to see some of his spell effects change yes. as part of what the character is going through. Yeah. So it's part of it now become part of a narrative because I've throughout the, the game, I've tried to make his spells very descriptive and very evocative and you know that it's his spells and now as he's gone through these changes and things are starting to shift we're going to see that as an indication of bigger changes happening in the character overall yeah yeah look forward to seeing that uh being released (laughs) and playing it yes so yeah lots of opportunities for spells spells are a huge area for description a huge area for personalization for all your spellcasters and also a huge opportunity for you as the DM to just take advantage of, you know, you know, uh, adding personality to your spellcasters or even your random NPCs that have, like, spell-like effects or supernatural abilities. Any kind of situation where, like, something out of the ordinary is happening, it's a big opportunity for you to add a lot of description to it. You know, call, th- call lightning doesn't have to look the same for everyone, you know. I know it's a bunch of storm cloud coming in and some lightning zapping down, but like that lightning can look different in the storm. Maybe there are like these giant red storm clouds that crawl, crawl in. If it's, you know, this, you know, big demonic, you know, NPC that's calling forth the lightning and, you know, like, Oh, something, this isn't normal storm clouds. Something bad's happening. And I know that just, you know, you flavor it with different characters. Um, I know you were telling me about a cleric that used spirit guardians and it appeared as a giant angel protecting them, you know, and, Going back to Dark Hounds, Tristan uses spirit guardians and it looks like a storm and lightning bolts striking down on the enemies. Right. Um, we've had an older cleric that actually had angelic forms flying out and flying back and in and out of his weapon that he was wielding. You know, he held it overhead and mm-hmm. they flew in and out of the weapon as a as you know, the focus for his spells. Right. You, know, you can use it to identify and individualize your characters by having spells that are the same spells other party members are using but you have your own flavor to them. Right, exactly, yeah. Um, another little thing, a little uh, subtext to it is that you can have the spell, you know, again, Spirit Guardians, but you can always call it whatever you want in the game. You know, um, again, the reference to the the giant angelic figure that, you know, kind of smites everyone that gets near this uh, cleric in one of the other games, 
they refer they don't refer to it as spirit gardens. They refer to it as um, uh, magic bell. I believe they refer to it as because that's the name of the angel or the figure of the angel that that kind of smites everyone around them. So I mean that's just another little flavor piece, another little piece of description, you know, to kind of make it their own. So when we were talking pre-show uh, before we recorded this, Jared came up with the idea of using your players for descriptions for NPCs and locations. My idea for for players, it's a little kind of out there, a little kind of experimental, is something I've done in games now and then, which is as a player, I ask my other players to make roles for certain purposes. Um, so, for example, they can make a perception check to see, you know, when they're asking about my character, and I'll give the general description of the character. Oh, you rolled really well on your perception check. You also notice this. Yeah. Or make a perception check to see if you notice something that's changed on the character. Mm -hmm. um, again, I don't want to spoil Dark Hounds too much, but we had that situation come up. And every I had everybody else make a check, and only David's character, Jarrell, passed the check. So he learned something that had changed that the others didn't. And while it hasn't come into play yet, we still have more episodes to record. We're going to see how that happens. Yeah, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. So, yeah, I mean, this is definitely going to be, like Jerry said, a little bit more on the experimental side. You know, it's not going to work. I wouldn't say it would be a good idea in every group. But if you have a group of more experienced players, especially if some of those players are also DMs, uh, I would say it's definitely something you can try and see if it works. But the option of having a player call for roles or request roles of other players, typically, I mean, it's going to be like a player-to-player -player kind of thing. Most commonly, uh, situation, I think, is going to be like perception checks, like Jerry mentioned. Or deception versus insight. Yeah, yeah, different social checks of, of some sort. Like, okay, well, oh, you're going to lie to my face? Okay, well, as a player, I know you're lying to my face, and that's fine. If the DM, again, this is assuming that the DM's not already calling for these roles, but like, hey, why don't you make me a deception check real quick? I'm going to roll an insight check and see if my dude figures this out. Like, I as a player want to know this or know that this is a situation. Let's make the roles to make sure that what happens in-game is staying in-game and we're using the correct roles for it. And I'm not just going along with your, your craziness just because, you know what I mean? So, and that's, again, that's the if the DM is willing to kind of uh, let these roles happen, you know, kind of take their hand off the trigger. I'm totally for the idea, you know, with the right groups. And the Dark Hounds group, I think it can work. You know, they're mostly experienced players. You know, several of them have DM. Jerry obviously has plenty of DM experience. But it's one of those you don't want it to get out of hand. You don't want it to go crazy. So it, and it has a definitely a, a possibility of, you know, you spending half the night with players trying to call for roles to each other. Right. I also I have the idea now of having the fun situation of a player is telling the truth. Another player thinks they may be lying. They do, okay, I'll roll deception, you roll insight. Okay, I rolled a 15 on my insight, and the player that rolled deception said, well, you know, you still think I'm telling the truth. Even though they may have rolled poorly, you think I'm telling the truth because I am. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. Um, just to keep that a little more of that difference between player knowledge, character knowledge, that, uh, that I personally love so much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So... Those were just a couple of the ideas that we came up with to help make it so that everything that needs to be done at the table isn't on the DM because we're about running games and we're about making things easier because the easier it is, the more you can focus on having fun. So thank you for joining us for our show today. As always, if you have any comments on today's topics or any 
stories you'd like to share about how you used it in your game, feel free to get in touch with us. Also, if there's anything you'd like to hear us discuss, let us know. Uh, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash GameMasterStudio. Subscribe for exclusive access to early content and also a few other special surprises and tricks we've been putting up there. You can get in touch with us on Twitter. We are GMS Studios, uh, available on Facebook for you to like, comment, and subscribe. And we have new episodes coming out every week with more information on running your game. We're posting them on Podbean at GameMasterStudio.Podbean.com through iTunes and available now on YouTube as well. Speaking of YouTube, check out our Darkhounds 360 VR campaign. Watch us play through, use the tips that you see here, and occasionally miss an opportunity. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for your support. We'll see you the next time that we get back into the studio.